Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. We'll introduce ourselves and the and the course, and then uh, we'll get get a good start on the notes tonight. Lord, we are grateful for your grace to us, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the church. It is a it is a a place of of solace, a place of 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 great encouragement uh, for us, uh, particularly in these uh, uh, very troubled times. And I, Lord, I do ask as we uh, study through the ins and outs and the, the nuts and bolts of how churches are to biblically operate, that we will not simply see this as a as an academic exercise, but an occasion for understanding and knowing the church better, understanding why you gave it to us, and then taking advantage of the benefits that it supplies and contributing as we are able to the uh, to the benefits to others, uh, whether those be financial or or more importantly in terms of encouragement and uh, mutual edification. Lord, I ask that uh, this would be a profitable course uh, to those ends and to uh, additional ones as well. And Lord, we ask that you strengthen us as we as we as we sit together and, and talk about the church, about your church. And Lord, I ask that we would profit from it. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and, uh, you know, we'll start here by by making sure we all know who each other are. Uh, most of you know each other. Uh, anybody here who's, uh, I think we've all been in classes together. Uh, if you haven't uh, met me, Mark Snowberger is my name. I teach up at Inner City Baptist Church and Seminary, Detroit Baptist Seminary there. And uh, this is one of the courses that... Uh, I teach there and, uh, it's, uh, we, we started this series here. It's a, it's an eight part series on, we're on page, we're on part seven now of eight. Uh, it started as sort of a leadership, uh, group. It was a fairly selective, select group of, of men who were looking to, uh, to be, you know, in the leadership of the, of the church. And uh, then we expanded it a few semesters in to pretty much allow anybody to be a part of it. But it's a, it's a fairly rigorous, somewhat academic endeavor here. I'm pretty much using my seminary notes. Uh, tried to, you know, soften a few things, take out a few, uh, Greek and Hebrew words and, and the like. But for the most part, uh, what you're, what you're seeing is uh, what guys are getting. In, in master's work. So it is, it's, it's a, it's a fairly aggressive notes. And, uh, and, uh, if you're not into that and you signed up for it and you didn't realize it, uh, why this is your, it's your opportunity if you need to, to, uh, to back away and, uh, and go to, go to another class. It's more to your, your liking here. Uh, but if you're, but if you're interested in this, this is, uh, this, that's what you're, what we're planning to do. There are, there are no tests per se, although I'll try to begin each class. Uh, with a, uh, with, with some questions, uh, just to sort of review some of the key elements of the previous class. When we meet together in person, I distribute a quiz, but that's kind of hard to do meeting online. So we'll just have some questions and, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try and keep an uncomfortable silence until somebody gives, gives an answer here. And usually that works pretty well. Otherwise I'll have to start calling on people. <laughs> But uh, let's go ahead and talk about what this church, uh, what this uh, class is going to be about. And uh, I've uh, put here on your screen uh, the uh, course requirements, such as they are. Again, if you're if you're only taking this to uh, uh, for your own edification, uh, you don't actually have to, you know, toe the line on all of these elements here. But if you are taking it as part of this core for the uh, for the leadership. Uh, team, uh, then there are a, a few requirements that we're expecting of you to make sure that uh, uh, you're you're getting full benefit from this. Okay, you can see here the course description is a survey of the doctrine of the Christian Church, uh, which we which is sometimes called ecclesiology. So you'll hear me use ecclesiology, ecclesiastical, ecclesiological. So. Uh, those are, those all have to do here with the church. Ecclesia is simply, um, the, uh, the, the Greek word for the called out assembly. So it's, it's the community, if I can put it that way. No, he, he's just, he's doing an overview. So, so we'll be, uh, so we'll be introducing here, uh, firstly, the role of the universal church, uh, it's, and only briefly, perhaps a, perhaps a day, maybe a second, 
uh, second night uh, we'll we'll bleed into here. Well, we'll talk about the universal church, the whole the whole of God's uh, elect in the New Testament uh-huh. era. And so we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about that at at uh, briefly, and then we'll give an extended defense of the principal features of a biblically organized New Testament local church. So that and uh, as we're going to see tonight, that sort of reflects the usage of the term as it appears in the New Testament. About ten percent have to do with the universal church, about ninety ninety percent with local churches, and that's sort of how we're going to distribute the, the class. We'll meet from 7 to 8 on Thursday evenings, uh, starting tonight, of course, running through May 29th. I think that's correct. Or is it supposed to be? It almost seems too long. I wonder if that's supposed to be April. Uh, I better check that one here. But, uh, uh, it's so, uh, I know it's, it's 15 weeks, so that's about right. Yeah. So May 29th. We will not be meeting on April 8th. Uh, that's in conjunction with Easter and a lot of spring breaks. Uh, so that's going to be our designated spring break. So we won't be meeting on April 8th. There's a textbook. So again, if you're taking this for, uh, for the, uh, for the, uh, uh, for the church leadership core classes, uh, you'll have to read this book by John Hammett, Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches. You can see here that, uh, it's in its second edition. If you happen to have the first edition, we can use that. The pagination will be slightly different. Uh, but if you have the first edition, uh, we, we can work with that. Uh, basically, um, I'm dealing, the, I'm, the pages 91 to 387 are the material on local church polity and such. And I think, uh, Hammett does an excellent job. Uh, when it comes to the universal church, he has a broader understanding of the universal church, uh, to include not only, uh, the New Testament church, but also the the saved of every age. And so I'm a little bit disappointed with the way he, he handles that. And so rather than reading the first 90 pages of that book, you'll actually find that there's about a, a 25 page shorter reading by Dr. McCune on the universal church. And I'd ask you to read that in, in place of those pages. So it's actually shorter uh, than if you'd read the whole book. And so if you want to get this for, as I say, credit for the, uh, uh, for the leadership team, uh, each student must, uh, read the course textbook. Of course, I recommend it. Everybody read it, but, uh, uh, that's something that we would expect from, from that core group. Um, and then evaluation, like I said, each week will feature an oral review of the material covered the previous week. And I'd like to think that you're, uh, sort of at least perusing through the notes before you, uh, wander into class here and perhaps have some answers or questions. Uh, from the previous week, uh, so that we can, uh, so that we can talk about some things. I, I always find that the more you talk, uh, the more, the more satisfying the class is, uh, because you get your, your itches scratched. Uh, so, uh, even though this, you know, sometimes you, you feel a little bit weird, uh, talking to a computer. I, I get it. Uh, feel free to do so. Uh, just, uh, unmute yourself. Uh, for the most part, uh, we should keep ourselves muted uh, when uh, uh, when we're ordinarily because there's all kinds of background sounds. You might not think there's much there, but if you've got, you know, 14 clocks go off at seven o'clock, <laughs> they they they, uh, they can they can be deafening here. So uh, we'll mute you most of the time. But that's again not a not not to discourage you from participating and talking here. It's just that, uh, that's just what we do just to keep it from getting out of hand. But please feel free at any time to unmute yourself and holler out. If I don't see you waving your hand, um, I mean, my screen is kind of small. And so I end up covering up some of you when I teach here. So if you're, if you're trying to get my attention, I just speak up and, uh, ask your question and we'll, and we'll see what we can do to get those answered. Okay. Any questions about where we're going here? Okay, if not, then uh, go ahead and find those notes that uh, are secretly hidden there on the church website. Uh, anybody, anybody still having trouble finding those? Okay, um, you can either print those out, or if you're uh, if you're not uh, too frightened to walk into the church, they have them. Stacked up there in the, uh, 
in the uh, in the foyer. So you can you can grab one there. I know some of you aren't headed into church these days, but uh, uh, if if that works for it. otherwise otherwise print it out or or you know most of my students these days at seminary, of course they're in a little bit younger demographic. They're they don't even use paper anymore, so they <laughs> they take all their notes right online. So, uh, but uh, so those are your options, and hopefully that works for you. Okay, everybody else got their notes. Okay, good. Well, let's go ahead and start here then. And you can see I've got an introduction here. We'll just start uh, as I like to do with the uh, uh, the Vince Lombardi. Um, this is a football. Okay, so this is the church. So what what is church? Well, the doctrine of the church, as we say here, is formally known as ecclesiology from the Greek word ekklesia, uh, which means church or assembly. Perhaps the word community uh, might be a good translation of that word. And ology, of course, is the study of. So the study of the communities, the study of the Christian community, if I can put it that way. The English word church likewise comes from the Greek as well. Sort of a little bit of an interesting story with that. Uh, the word kuriakos, which means belonging to the Lord. Kurios is Lord. Kuriakos, belonging to the Lord. And the reason uh, that uh, this name was given was was ended up sticking uh, for the church was uh, due to a sort of a an interesting twist of events. The church is not a building. Okay, so we we talk about go up to the church. I just said it, right? Uh, go up to the church as though the church is a building. Uh, but uh, early on, in the first three centuries of the church, there weren't any buildings. Uh, that really doesn't start happening until Christianity receives toleration status in the Roman Empire in 313. And then uh, after he proclaimed Sunday as a perpetual holiday in 321. And so at that point, uh, the church is recognized as a legitimate organization and then actually becomes a favored uh, uh, organization. And so at that time, they start building churches. And as as the churches are built, they often are built with the uh, gifts of people. And they were a little bit... Uh, sometimes they were, they were ornate. Sometimes they had sculptures inside and such. And what ended up happening is people began to target them. Thieves began to target them because of, they would have valuable resources inside. And so they were called robbers kuriakas, which means robbers of things that belong to the Lord. But since they were church robbers, they robbed these buildings. Uh, the buildings became known as the church. And so that's really how the building became known as the church. But actually, in, 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 in actuality, uh, what, uh, what the church is, is the community. It's the assembly of the people who just happen to meet oftentimes in a building. Okay. We should also not be confused when we see the word church in scripture as a civil or denominational structure, such as the Roman Catholic Church, or sometimes when we talk about the church and state as, as some sort of a denomination. These are popular usages of the church, uh, in, in the media and as, uh, in, in popular, popular culture. Uh, but that's not one of the meanings of church in, in the Bible. Okay. Instead, the biblical term here has reference to the body of believers, the called out ones. The word simply means to be called out. Kaleo is from where we get this word ecclesia, ecclesia. And so we are the ones who have been called out from the world by means of spirit baptism to function as the body of Christ. And, uh, I, I, just a little bit of, of, of a caveat here. Some of you have studied, a, a, dabbled a little bit in Greek here. And sometimes, uh, you, you see here, okay, they're the called out ones, the ones who are regenerate. Uh, but probably it's one of those words that has actually exceeded, uh, the, the limits of the, uh, of the etymology itself. There's a lot of words in, in the New Testament, uh, that, uh, that have a general and a technical meaning. Uh, the word disciple, uh, are, it simply means the ones who are sent, but we recognize that the disciples were a particular group of people. Apostles is the same way. These are the sent out ones. Um, the word scripture actually means anything written. 
But when we talk about the scripture, we're talking about the biblical scriptures. And then all books are not Bibles, okay? Uh, Biblios is a book, but the Bible, the Bible, or the scripture, as reference to uh, the Christian sacred scriptures. And this, and this term ecclesia is the same way. Um, we probably should not think of it as an etymolo- etymological thing. It's the called out ones. We should probably think in terms of a community or an assembly. Okay. And that's really the meaning of the term, the basic meaning of the term. It's a community or an assembly. And so let's, let's look at the New Testament usage briefly here. That term is used twice in the New Testament in a general sense of an ethnic assembly. Uh, the Israelite assembly. So there was a group of Israelites gathered together and they were called an ecclesia, but it was just an assembly of Israelites. So it's twice used that way. Three times it's used of a civil assembly. Uh, so people were gathered about to hear a pronouncement of, of Herod, for instance. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, and, and so they were called an assembly. Uh, so three times we find that in the, uh, in the New Testament. But so five times we find a, a, an off usage of ecclesia. 109 times, however, the term ecclesia is used in the New Testament of the assembly of believers, uh, what we consider now the church. Now, now, not all of those 109 are exactly the same. 11 reference the whole body of Christ in, in, in all ages. Okay. So it would include not only those who were currently alive, but also looks forward to those who would be part of the church and backwards to those who have passed away, those those church members that we have known who have, who have passed on. Eight reference the whole of the church then living, okay? But the other 90, and this is where we're going to spend the greatest amount of time in this course, reference local churches, individual local churches. And so that's that's where we're going to spend the, the the large majority of our time in this class talking about local churches. But before we get to that, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the church universal. It'll it'll run tonight, maybe some of next week, uh, but uh, and and then we'll get into the local church. So why is this important? Well, two areas of emphasis that I want to make central here in this course are dispensational and practical. What I mean by that is this. The dispensational value of this study will be seen primarily in the first section of the syllabus uh, because we find that God is working differently during the period of the New Testament church than he was in Old Testament Israel, and then he will be in the kingdom that is to come. And so we find that the organizational structure, the administration of what God is doing in the world is unique in this age. It is distinct from Israel in the Old Testament. It is distinct from the kingdom, which is yet future. And so we want to make sure we're, we're, we're finding our place and, and not finding our practical instruction outside of the boundaries here of the church instruction here. Um, but then there's practical value as well, uh, found primarily in the second section of the notes here, or the largest section. Since God has entrusted his entire program of witness and service on earth during this period of time to the institution of the church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, much of the New Testament is given over to a discussion of what this church should look like, how it should operate, what it should be doing, and when we talk about what the church is supposed to be doing, we, re- we recognize it's not that it's the church as a block or as some sort of, 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 of leadership team, but rather it's the whole church, the whole assembly. What is the community of believers supposed to be accomplishing together? And so we'll spend the, the bulk of our time uh, talking about the, the local church. I include, include a rather large bibliography here. Uh, not all of this is, is, uh, you know, I, I just try and be comprehensive here for those of you who want to read a little bit more about what we're doing. Um, but, uh, there's some, uh, some very, some practical books here. Tabidi and, and Yabwild, 
Uh, what is a healthy church member? There's also another by Deborah. What is a healthy church? Short, tr- short treatments, but very, very valuable. Uh, they, they encourage believers to become involved in the church and become healthy church members because healthy church members make for a healthy church. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people come to church for the wrong reasons. And, uh, these books, I think, are, are particularly helpful for you to sort of, to recognize what, what you're supposed to be doing every, every week when you come to church. It's, it's not just something that you're supposed to be receiving. You are to be receiving, but you're also supposed to be, it's, it's a give and take. You're giving encouragement. You're giving edification. You're giving service. Sometimes you're giving resources so that the, the, so that the whole can operate, so that the mission of the church can be carried out, uh, uh, beyond the walls of the church, uh, so that the needs of those who are in the church can be met, uh, and, and so all these one another passages that appear throughout the whole New Testament really are our ground orders. These are the, and there are 55 one another passages in the New Testament. These are our ground orders. These are the things that we're supposed to be doing week by week by week by week. In order to, uh, to push forward, to further the work of the local church. Okay. There's a number of books here that, uh, are, are helpful for understanding why, uh, we're Baptists as opposed to, say, Presbyterians or Episcopalians. And there's a uh, the number of, of multiple views books, uh, that allow you to, to perhaps understand the inner workings of some of the other denominations and, and from the, uh, from defenders of each of those and get a, get a sense as to why uh, we hold to the Baptist principles here. Uh, it's not just something you just pick and choose. We just happen to like the people here. So we become a Baptist. Uh, there is a biblically right and wrong way uh, to carry out the church. And so you see there's a one by Chad Brand, another one by Stephen Cohen, who talk about how the church is supposed to be governed and organized um, there's other books on, uh, church order. How is it that the church is supposed to be operated? Dag, Dana, uh, Dargan. These are all, uh, helpful here. Uh, there, Dever has some, some really helpful materials here. Um, and, uh, he's also got that historical collection called Polity, collection of historic Baptist documents. I think it's always fascinating to see how Baptists have conducted church over the course of centuries. And not to, we, we, we oftentimes get sort of locked into 21st century and we imagine that this is just the way it's always been done. And the fact is we've made some changes. Some of them may have been good. Some of them, you know, we've lost some, some things that uh, have historically been quite valuable. And so I think it's a, it, it gives us a good sense. Kevin DeYoung's book is really helpful here. What is the mission of the church? That is, what is it, what is it that the church is tasked with doing in the world today? Um, and, uh, I think it's a, it's a particularly helpful, uh, resource there because I think a lot, again, a lot of people have no idea why the church is supposed to be there. Um, and, uh, they, they imagine maybe it's, maybe it's for, for feeding the poor and, and being, uh, being a, a you know, place where morality is stressed in a, in a dark culture. But, you know, that, that's, that I think we miss, we're missing perhaps some of the uh, function of the church. And there's that, that book's a very helpful one. Um, there's your textbook, Hammett, I think is particularly good. New Directory for Baptist Churches, very dated, but I think it gives some good biblical uh, principles of organization for the church. Um, others here, Lehman is particularly helpful when we talk about, uh, about uh, church discipline. Um, but, uh, um, and uh, you can see also some books on baptism. Uh, Lord's, Lord's table, elders and deacons. And so if you've got some questions about these particular issues that we don't uncover every rock for you, uh, there's some additional readings here, uh, that you can follow up on. I think, uh, uh, they, they can be helpful for you. Any questions here on, on any of these sources? Or perhaps you have a book and you're wondering about it, uh, uh you know, run the title or author past me and perhaps we can, Talk about it and see if I can give you a sense of what the book's about. If not, then we'll just, we'll jump into here the uh, doctrine of the universal church. Okay. 
So the universal church. Uh, the universal church is the total number of true Christian believers, followers of Christ, whether in heaven or on earth, who have been baptized into the body of Christ. I say spirit baptized here, but ideally those who have been spirit baptized are also water baptized into the body of Christ as well. But more on that in a little bit. Okay, so uh, uh, other definitions expand this idea of the church to include all believers in every age. But while that view is common, it's inadequate because it makes some assumptions that really can't uh, that can't be sustained in Scripture. Uh, we find that the, uh, the, when we are spirit baptized into one body in Christ as a multi-ethnic body, this is something that began in, in all of those features, uh, after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were communities of believers, uh, but they were ethnically sequestered, uh, uh, they were mixed bodies, uh, you know, so, so some believers and some unbelievers, the Israelite, Israelite nation in large part was a group of unregenerate people. And yet they were part of his community, but it's not the church. That's a, that's a different animal entirely. Um, and we also find that the church has a different mission. One of the things we want to, to, to point out here is that Israel had as its mission things different than what the church had to do. And so we're trying to tease a little bit of that out as we try and define what the New Testament local church has in distinction from Israel. And so uh, we, we want to make sure that we're, we're, we're recognizing uh, that the church universal has a beginning. Uh, it begins likely on the day of Pentecost, and it has an ending, uh, which is the rapture of the church to heaven, uh, where it meets Christ. Uh, and uh, there is a marriage ceremony where the church becomes the bride of Christ, okay? So we talk about this universal church to distinguish it from uh, the various local assemblies that are scattered around the globe. Uh, This term draws attention to the fact that it includes all believers between Pentecost and rapture and around the world, okay? Sometimes it's called the invisible church, not because the people can't be seen, but they're never all seen together until we finally all get to heaven. Okay. Uh, we're scattered throughout the world. We're scattered throughout history. And so it's never visibly together. That's why we call it the invisible church. Um, sometimes it's called the body church, the body of Christ, drawing attention to the fact that this is a group that is exclusive of other bodies of believers that exist in uh, the Christian church. Uh, and so sometimes also you'll see the term Catholic church. Now, uh, some of you have come from Roman Catholicism. Uh, and uh, what, what they are saying is that the one true church is the Roman church. Uh, the problem with the Roman Catholic church is not the word Catholic. It's actually the word Roman, Okay. There is one true Catholic church of all believers, uh, baptized into Christ, and it is rightly called the one holy Catholic church. Most of your creeds, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, talk about the Catholic church. And what they simply mean by that is the community of all believers in the, in the, in the New Testament era. Okay. Nothing wrong with the term, but it's sort of been hijacked, of course by the Roman Catholic Church, and so oftentimes you don't hear that term used. But the word simply means universal. So Catholic and universal have identical meanings. Okay? So let's talk about these distinctions of the universal church. I want to make sure we recognize that the church is not Israel. Uh, Covenant theology, uh, Reformed theology, in an effort to protect the immutability of God's character and decree, uh, detects a seamless community of all believers of all time in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's the one redemptive community of God. So they're comfortable talking about Israel as the church in the Old Testament, and the church is New Testament Israel, or the new Israel. 
And I am sympathetic with the need to protect God's immutability and make sure that we're not suggesting that Christians, that believers were saved in different ways, in different epochs of history. Nonetheless, I think it's important to say that Israel and church are not the same thing. See if we can't tease out some of the differences. First, I say here, the immutability of God does not, the changelessness of God, doesn't mean that God is changeless in his programs or his actions, but rather that he's changeless in his character and decree. And so there can be variety within his plan for the ages. Uh, there doesn't have to be identity of, in, 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 you know, sameness in every, at every level. He's changeless in his character, yes. He's changeless in his decree. But that does not mean there cannot be some nuancing, variation, or change within God's program. In fact, we should expect it, okay? Uh, God's not always doing the same thing all the time. Uh, he's an interesting God. And so there are changes within the program. Um, Israel is an elect nation that is a socio-political community in which God manifested his civil character. And that's, that's the, that's the niche that Israel fits. It's a, it's a, it's a civil election. It's not a redemptive election. Think, uh, again, I think some folks imagine, okay, everybody in the Old Testament was believers, just like everyone in the church are believers, but that's not true. Uh, the, the Old Testament Israel was a, was an ethnic body. It was a, it was a, it was a, a, a group of Israelites, Jews. Some of them were believers, some of them weren't. And so we find that it is a civil organization, but the church is a regenerate community through which God has manifested the fullness of his redemptive character. Okay. So it's not a civil community per se. It's a redeemed community. So the church is a redeemed community. Israel is a civil or ethnic community. And while they are both in some sense elect groups by God, they are elect for different purposes. Israel is not elect unto salvation, but they are elected as a particular civil and ethnic body through which God is carrying out his program in the Old Testament. The church is a redeemed body through which God is carrying out his mission in the New Testament, which looks a little bit different than the mission uh, that Israel was to carry out in the Old. And so, so we shouldn't confuse these. And that it's not going to be without mistake that most of our scripture references that we're going to be using in this class come from the New Testament. Because the Old Testament knows nothing of this redeemed community, or very little. Uh, there are some oblique uh, uh, predictions uh, that you might find in the Old Testament. But by and large, all of the information we know about the church is from the New Testament. Okay? And so probably 99% of the uh, Bible verses that you're going to see in this course come from the New Testament. Okay? So, how are, what are the differences then? Let's see if we can't enumerate some of these. The church, I say first off, is different in character from Israel. Its components are distinct. In the church, Jews and Gentiles are on a plane of equality. Uh, there aren't supposed to be any racial or ethnic divisions within the life of the church. And unfortunately, uh, as history has unfolded, that has occurred. Uh, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, the uh, New Testament is quite clear that there really is, it is supposed to be an ethnically uh, um, heterogeneous group. There's supposed to be, it's supposed to be a melting pot. Uh, it's supposed to reflect whatever community you just happen to be in, okay? But that's not how the Old Testament operated. The Old Testament allowed Gentiles only into very limited fellowship with the nation of Israel, okay? You could become a proselyte. You could join yourself to the nation of Israel. Uh, but when it came, when you went to Israel, when you went to Jerusalem uh, for the worship, you you could never get into the inner courts, Okay? The court of the Gentiles was, was 
considerable distance away from the holy of holies. And then, you know, the, 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 the Gentiles were out here and then, and, and then the women and then the Israelite men were the ones who were able to get closest and the priests were actually enter, able to enter into, uh, the, uh, the, the, the holy, the holy place. Uh, but the Gentiles were always on the outskirts. Okay. But the church, does not know those kinds of racial or ethnic barriers, or at least shouldn't. In fact, we have several texts that suggest this. Galatians 3, 27. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In this body, there are neither Jews nor Greeks. Now, it doesn't mean they don't exist. It's just that they have no particular status within the life of the church. There, There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And, and so we, we all have a, an, an equal place within the life of the church. And when it comes to, you know, the vote down, down the line, we talk about polity. You know, we all have, all have one vote. Um, and that should be true whether you're, you know, a, a, an American who's been here for six generations. Uh, whether you've just gotten over the boat from off of the boat from Europe or whether you're whether you're a, a rich man or a poor man, whether you're a man or a woman, you should be able to find your, your place here in the family, which is the church. There are to be no distinctions. Ephesians says much the same way. Remember, he's talking to the Gentiles. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, those who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Okay, so Jews and Greeks here. Remember that you were at one time separate from Christ. Gentiles, those who were not Jews, were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, broke down all the barriers and dividing walls of division and abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace might reconcile them both in one body through the cross, having put to death the enmity. Moving on in Ephesians, the next chapter, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, that there is a mystery of the church. We should pause to mention what a mystery is, something that was previously unrevealed, but now has been revealed. Okay, So this is something that previously in the Old Testament period was unknown. Now it has been revealed. So what is this mystery? which in other generations was not made known as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. This is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I make a comparison here to Mark chapter 7 is an incident in the life of Jesus Christ. There's a woman uh, who is begging uh, for Jesus to to help her and her family uh, because of illness in the family. And she understands, even though she is a Syrophoenician, uh, just someone from Phoenicia, Tyre. Uh, Remember the Syrophoenician, there's a Syrophoenician woman who, uh, who houses Elijah. Remember back in the Old Testament, so this, these are, these are people, uh, from, um, from among the Canaanites. Uh, really, this is sort of the, the, the center for all of that Baal worship that was going on in the Old Testament. These people aren't, uh, wiped out. And yet this woman here, uh, recognizes that this Jewish Messiah could possibly help her and her family. And so she was kept asking him over and over, to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said, it sounds like a a crass, callous thing he was saying, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay. He's saying, I didn't, I didn't, I, I came 
for the Jews. I came to save my people, Israel, from their sins. So let them be satisfied first. And because I'm not going to take what belongs to them and give it to the Gentiles. But she persisted, right? She answered and said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. So she recognizes her place in the Old Testament economy. She recognizes that she is of lesser status than the Israelites. But she also recognizes that, say, in the Abrahamic covenant, that the nations can be blessed through Abraham. And so that there can be trickled down benefits from God's relationship with Israel that could benefit even the faithful nations around them. And she said, yeah, I'm a dog. I get it. But even the dogs under the table can eat the crumbs that the children drop. And, you know, in the ministry of Christ, there was a lot of crumb dropping going on. Right. And so she takes advantage of that. Uh, but uh, and we're scandalized a little bit by that conversation. Uh, it seems seems wrong to us, you know. Jesus tells calls this woman a dog. You know, it's it 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 scandalizes us a little bit. But it it gives us a glimpse, a window into the reality of the way things were in the Old Testament. Okay, there was an ethnic priority placed on Jews and all the other nations, while they could receive benefits including salvation, they were on a second level, okay? But not in the church, okay? Not in the church. Uh, in the New Testament church, there are no distinctions of that nature, okay? So I say here that its components are distinct. The church's components are distinct in character from Israel. Secondly, entry into these communities is very distinct as well. How does one become an Israelite? Well, you're born to Jewish parents. And then if you're a boy, uh, you could be confirmed into the community through circumcision. That's how you get into the community. There's no other way. Believers are placed into the one new man, according to the passages we just read in Ephesians 2 and Galatians 3, through spirit baptized, baptism. We are baptized into this one new body, whether Jew or Gentile. Okay. So how do you get into the church? By being saved and baptized. How do you get into Israel? By being born a Jew and being circumcised if you're a, if you're a young man. Okay. And so the, so the communities are quite different in terms of their, of their character. And their, and their entry. So by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Gentile, bond or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Okay. And we also read Ephesians up there as well. So we are, they are distinct in terms of their components, of their entry, uh, the entry rights, and then also uh, their character. Uh, the Old Testament Israel was not a regenerate community but a civil community. The New Testament church, on the other hand, is a distinctively regenerate community. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. Of course, we all recognize that sometimes people get into the church who oughtn't be there, uh, people who aren't believers. And uh, there are provisions, even in these notes, we work through it as to what to do uh, when we realize this is the case. But ideally, there's not to be anyone in the church, the local church, other uh, than people who are regenerate. Okay? Any questions on that up up till now? Come up for air here? Uh, Wes, you're muted. No, you're still muted. I, you should just down in the, uh, the down in the lower left hand corner, there should be a mute button. Lower left. Oh, no. there you go. Oh. Oops. You just, you just, you just did it again. You, you had it, you had it and then you toggled it back. There you go. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. 
I like okay. the Ryzen guy. You said something that was kind of interesting. I just always real had kind of a hard understanding. And I'm, when I say hard, I mean I'm talking about like, like that's it. Uh, that the day of Pentecost was the beginning, and and it seemed like you had said something earlier about. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, you said Old Testament, uh, not that, but you said Old Testament was. Uh, uh, there were maybe a few inklings, but I understood from Ephesians two and three that that, that it was previously before the apostles and prophets. That there was nothing. There was right. nothing about the church in God's certainly, revelation. Certainly, nothing of 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 consequence or detail. But we recognize that there's going to, from the Old Testament, that there's going to be a setting aside of Israel until the fullness of Gentiles come in. We recognize that there's going to be a, uh, and, and then a reassembling of the people of Israel. So we know there's, there's a gap in God's dealings with Israel in which he deals with the Gentiles. We recognize from the discussion of the new covenant uh, that there is going to be, there are going to be changes in the new covenant community. So some, some, I could say some very oblique references, but nothing, nothing of, of specificity. That's okay. It. Just oblique. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Other questions? Okay. Let's talk about the timing, the distinction of time from church and Israel. Well, the time of the origin of the church is a matter of some debate. Some begin the church with Adam. Others begin it with Abraham. Others begin with John the Baptist, erroneously thought to be the first Baptist. he's, He's not a, he's the baptizer is what the word means. Others begin it with Jesus. Others begin it with Pentecost. And others even, uh, sometimes called hyper-dispensationalists, don't actually start the church until chapter 9 of Acts uh, when the Gentiles are brought into uh, the body. But I think we can probably uh, pinpoint the time uh, fairly carefully here uh, through a number of, you know, we're going to have about a number of items here and so we can sort of triangulate them all and they all seem to land uh, near Pentecost. So let's see if we can't uh, tease through that. Firstly, we say here, letter A, that the establishment of the church is after the ministry of Christ. Why? Well, because Matthew 16 says, or Jesus says, upon this rock, which is Peter and his confession, that uh, Jesus will build his church. And it's said in the future tense. This is the first time the term is used in the New Testament. Comes right on the heels of the Jewish rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And so we come immediately into a series of parables in chapter 13 and 14 that introduce a new way of things. And, uh, in verse, in chapter 16, uh, he defines or, or denominates this new way of doing things as the church. And that's the first time we see the term appear in the New Testament. And it's still in the future at this point. I am going to build my church in the future based on Peter, the apostle, and his confession, his recognition that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Messiah. Okay? And so that I'm sort of answering here the question in the next box here. What is the rock upon which the church is built? Um, and there's a lot of debate. Um Roman Catholics view this as Christ's appointment of Peter to be the first pope. Okay. You're going to, you, Peter, are going to be the rock. Okay. And so Peter is appointed by Jesus as his vicar, his, his, his representative on earth, the first pope. And so, and so, so this is, this is when Peter gets his, his comeuppance. And for that reason, many Protestants have shied away from identifying the rock as Peter. Um, a number of variety, a number of options show up. Sometimes the rock is Christ himself. Christ is the chief cornerstone, as opposed to Peter, who is a little stone. Some would suggest it's Peter's confession is the rock. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
or perhaps all of the apostles together, I will build my church upon you. And as you work your way through uh, the uh, through the uh, through the text, it's not just Peter, but all of the apostles. In fact, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation stones of all of the apostles and New Testament prophets. And so perhaps Peter might be the first stone uh, that is identified here, but all of the apostles and all of the New Testament prophets are the foundation stones. We shouldn't think of Peter as somehow unique among these. But honestly, if it weren't for the Catholic abuse of this verse, you know, this whole idea of Peter is the first pope, papal succession, infallibility of the pope, absolute authority and all that. The most likely reference here is to Peter. That would be the normal understanding. He's the first one to fully embrace who Jesus is, and he's given a place of honor in the early church. And if you look through the first nine chapters of the book of Acts in the early church, Peter is by far the dominant apostle. Uh, in the early church, okay? And uh, it says here, I will give you, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you, singular, bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose, singular, on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, we find that this verse expands in Matthew 18 uh, to the whole church. The whole church becomes recipients of the keys. But they're given initially to a single person, and that is Peter. And that's what we see happening in Acts 1 through 9. Peter, the earliest leader, presides over the 120 that are together on the day of Pentecost. Once the, you know, once the, the flames of fire fall upon these people and, and the, and the, uh, the miracles of Pentecost take place, Peter gives the Pentecost address, right? Chapter 2, pretty much given over to this address that Peter gives on the day of Pentecost. He's the one who brings the gift of the Holy Spirit to Samaria. Okay. What's, what's, what's the sequence supposed to be, right? You shall be witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Okay. And so he's here speaking in Jerusalem and Judea. He's the one who's on the front lines, bringing the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and then in chapter 10, he brings the gospel to the first Gentile converts. And so he, he, you can see the, the outworking of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Peter seems to have some sort of a singular function as the, as the primary uh, leader of the early church. Now, he doesn't remain uh, in, in, in quite that uh, situation. Paul seems to dominate the second half of the uh, of the book of Acts. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, um, and uh, his his missions work uh, dominates that uh, you know more really more than the second half. It's a little more than half of the of the book of Acts, but it does appear uh, that temporally Peter is first in terms of 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 rank here. So he's not the only foundational stone. But he does seem to be the first, humanly speaking, of the apostles who uh, who buys into what Jesus is doing. I'm not saying he's the first pope. Okay, don't hear me saying that. But I, it does appear uh, that he seems to be the appointed leader of the early church in its in its in its very earliest years. Okay. Any questions on that? I know some of you come out of Roman Catholic background. Is that uh, resonate with you is that you recoil from it <laughs> apparently it's okay with you okay another another little question we have about this verse here that I want to make sure we get here what does Jesus mean when he says the gates of hell will not overcome the church well some have taken this to mean that the ch- the church is to storm the gates of hell and take the world over for Christ whether in the sense of evangelism or to capture the political and social structures of the world and to create a Christian state. But that's probably not what is intended. I mean, it is not what is intended here. We should note here that the gates are not the, that, that it is the gates that are the advancing force. 
the understanding here is that although the church is going to go through some really rough patches and will seem at times to be in jeopardy of being snuffed out of existence due to persecution, Christ will ensure the survival of the church. The gates of hell will never close on the church, even in its bleakest hour. Okay. And so that's, that's the promise that is made here. It's, it doesn't give us marching orders. We're not supposed to sing onward Christian soldiers and, and, uh, and take over the world for Christ and, you know, storm the capital or, or whatever it is that you were thinking that might have meant. Okay. So we find here that it's future. It's after the ministry of Christ. Uh, Jesus predicts it. Uh, we also find that in Acts 1, uh, even, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Remember, uh, by the time we get to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you all were baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, bond or free. But in Acts 1, it's still future. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his authority. But at some point, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will then be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth. Okay? We also find that in order for the church to exist, it has to... The cross work of Christ has to have occurred. Uh, We find in Ephesians 2 that Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation stones. And entry into the church is by spirit baptism into Christ. That is a participation in his death and his resurrection to new life. So in order to be part of the church, in order to be uh, baptized into Christ, uh, you... There has to have been the death and resurrection of Christ that the idea of baptism really doesn't make sense until that has happened. Also find that uh, the ordinances of the church make no sense if Jesus has not died. Baptism and communion, they're symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Old Testament Israel didn't know about these things. Those were yet future. They were unknown. Uh, We find that Ephesians 1 says that uh, Jesus has to ascend up on high in order to assume a headship of the church. He has to ascend to the right hand of God where he becomes the head of the church. Same thing in Ephesians 7. He has to ascend up on high before he can give gifts to men. Uh, and then he enumerates what many of those gifts are. And so the church cannot start until Christ has gotten through his earthly ministry, has died, has risen, and has ascended. It's only then if there's a green light uh, for the church to begin, which is why then Jesus, uh, Paul is called uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles because he is the primary uh, purveyor of church truth. He's not the only one, but he's the primary one. And so we find here in Ephesians by Revelation, there was known to be this mystery which in other generations was not made known, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of one body, fellow partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Okay, So before the holy apostles received this information about the church, there really was nothing of substance that could have been known about the church. And so Paul is called the apostle of the Gentiles. It was during his lifetime uh, that the mystery was revealed. And then its conclusion is at the rapture. Um, So we find that the church is removed from the world. They avoid the wrath of God that falls during that 70th week, that last uh, seven years uh, that Daniel predicts in his book. Um, And they escape uh, to heaven the uh, restrainer is removed, and they are not seen on earth throughout the book of Revelation. Once you get past chapter 3, uh, the church disappears until you get to chapter 19, uh, where we have the discussion of the uh, of the uh, marriage supper, the, the marriage and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, so 
their the, the character of the uh, the of Israel and the church are distinct. Uh, the uh, the uh, the entry into the community is distinct. Uh, the timing of the church in Israel are distinct. And then I give you a, a bit of a chart here of some other distinctions, distinct origins, purposes, and destinies. Okay. And this is something that persists, uh, even into the eschaton. We'll pick this up next time, finish up this section, uh, make sure we understand the distinctions of the church and the kingdom and the implications that are there for the mission of the church. So that'll be our task next time, and we'll probably have time to uh, get a, at least a, a bit of a start on the uh, local church. Any questions as we uh, wrap up our, our first uh, night here?